Good morning. Thanks, Lester. Okay. Yes, B. Way to keep that alive, bro. It's the culture. Do it for the culture. How was your Thanksgiving? Everybody good? Good morning. My name is Aswan. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me pray. God, speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So many of you may or may not know our lead pastor, Jordan Rice and I, uh, met each other. Our friendship started maybe about nine years ago. Um, and uh, while he was beginning to plant, plant Renaissance, um, he shot me. He was shooting emails around to connect with people. I was doing my thing with Young Life. We got connected via email. Um, shout out to RIP, actually, to Kitchenette Uptown. Uh, they didn't make it. All right, facts. They, their best chicken and four cheese, mac and cheese. So we had, a, we had dinner there um, just to kind of talk about what it could be to get Renaissance started. And our bromance started right there. I remember leaving that and saying, yo, this is, I like this guy. Um, <clears throat> but our friendship really got deeper pretty quickly. So those of you who know, Jordan practiced law, and so he hadn't met Jess yet. So his, his car was a mess. His life was a mess. Um, but uh, I had happened to realize that I had a, a ticket, that um, a speeding ticket, that required me to kind of like visit the court system. One of, yeah, one of those situations, kind of. It wasn't that serious, at least to me. But Jordan, in his fashion, he's like, yo, I'm going to go with you. Oh, okay, bro, let's go. I got a lawyer with me. We out. I'm driving. I think he drove, right, just for the record. Are we recording this? All right. I think he drove, and uh, when we get there, you know, natural kind of traffic law fashion. There's millions of people there, and uh, they call me up. I'm like, cool. They call us into the room, and so Jordan walks into the room with me, behind me. I stand at the, what do you call this? What is this thing? The podium, I guess. I stand there. Jordan sits at the seat right here, but he's on his phone, and he's not dressed. So the judge looks at me, then he looks at Jordan, and he was like, who are you? And Jordan was like, yeah, I, you know, I practice law. I'm here with, you know, my friend, client. I don't remember exactly the, how he described it. He said, um, oh, you do, huh? Uh, <laughs> counselor approached the bench, approached the desk. They're using judicial terms. I'm not familiar. He, he gets up there, and he starts blacking on Jordan. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you here? Jordan is like, um, uh, your honor, I just stop talking in my courtroom. Don't say a word in my courtroom. I'm like, he's like, yo, but your honor, I mean, it's not that you Counselor, you, I, will, I will take your license, everything. You know what? Get out of my courtroom. He throws him out. Straight threw him out, and me and Jordan make this weird eye contact. I'm like, bro, I don't even know how to get in touch with you after this. Where, where do you go? Where do you go from here? He leaves, and it's just me and the judge. It's just me standing in front of the judge. The person who had all the power, had the ability to look at my record and make judgment about my driving, and make some decisions that could affect my life. At that moment, I was super anxious. My palms were sweaty, knees weak, arms was heavy, vomit on my sweater already, mom's spaghetti, I'm nervous. 
Shout out to my hip-hop heads. Shout out to my hip-hop heads. I, I literally remember that moment, and it was just me and the judge. And as I was preparing for this message, the Lord promised that this would be a conversation between me and him. And he said, what, what would it feel like? What does it feel like to be in a relationship with you and a judge? It doesn't feel good. And then even more sobering, the Lord says, oftentimes, Aswan, and I don't know about you who are here with us in person and online, he said, Aswan, sometimes, sometimes you're the judge. And I think about my relationship with my wife and the times that she has experienced me in um, holding the microscope to all her wrongs and flaws. And I thought to myself, what if I asked her? I didn't dare ask her in preparation for this. <laughs> I, I kind of mentioned it in passing, and she, I, I saw she was going to give me that kind of amen, so I didn't really look at her. What would it be like to be in a relationship with someone who holds the microscope 24-7? It has to be hard. It has to be not safe. It has to be scary, anxiety-inducing. And I just don't think that's the way God desires for us to live our relationships and have our relationships. In fact, <laughs> the Bible says it like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, it's not irritable. Ouch. You know, sometimes we don't read the Bible because it, it says things that pierces us. That's what I really think. Non people who don't follow Jesus and, and, and even those of us who claim to be Christians, I think we avoid the text sometimes because it is piercing. Then it says this, love does not keep a record of wrong. And man, I keep records of wrong. Now, it's not overt. My wife will tell you, I'm not, I'm not irate about it. I, I don't, I'm not trying to shove things in your face. But I'm the type of dude, I keep those things in my pocket. I keep the facts about the situation in them. Right? Y'all know some of those people. Some of y'all are those people. I keep the facts. I'm telling, oh, oh, I did not say that. That's not what I said. Well, what did you say? I didn't say that. <laughs> and I, I like that. I, I, there's parts of me, and I'm talking with y'all honestly up here. Like, there's parts of me, uh, it's, it's, it's how I'm wired. However, I have to hold intention the way that it wakes, makes my wife feel. If I care about the relationship, am I loving her if I'm holding records of wrong? Imagine if you were in a relationship where the record slate was clean. Imagine if you had the freedom to make mistakes and be flawed and, and make offenses that were then just forgiven. See, holding records of wrong is also known as unforgiveness. But I want to give us a few caveats this morning before we jump into the text. But um, I think there's some myths out there about forgiveness. Here's one. I, I feel like the myth is that if you forgive, then you have to forget. And that's not true. It's almost humanly impossible for you to just forget. 
In fact, God doesn't just forget. He's omniscient. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about us, what we have done and what we will do. The beauty about God is that he sees and knows everything about you. He never forgets, but he chooses to treat you as if you didn't do it. That's powerful. Forgiveness does not mean you have to forget. Myth number two, myth buster number two. Feeling pain does not mean you haven't forgiven. And so I think about it like this. My wife and I talk about this a lot. We went to this really intense counseling, um, which was super helpful. We got some tools. But we, we, we learned this idea that there are triggers and there is trauma that we all go through. Yes? We all have issues in life and things that have happened before our relationships, and there's things that will happen after and all that good stuff, but the, there are triggers to that trauma, and that trauma brings up feelings, and so there may be some things that I've done to her, and then I may do it again, and just because she feels the feeling again doesn't mean she hasn't forgiven me for the offense. See, that's the myth. There's this little narrative that says, you see, um, there you go, feeling, feeling that feeling again. You didn't really forgive them. Don't you, in those for us who follow Jesus, that narrative says, aren't you a Christian? Well, aren't you supposed to forgive? Well, you can forgive and still feel. See, the definition of for, to, to forgive is to, um, to stop feeling anger towards someone for their Offense, flaw, or mistake. It doesn't say stop feeling. It says stop feeling anger. Anger is a master emotion. So you're going to feel. Be in those feelings. But it doesn't mean you have not forgiven. Another myth buster. Forgiving someone does not mean you excuse or condone their actions. Family, I wrestle with this because I be trying to hold people accountable. Nah. You're not about to just do that to me and me not tell you you can't do that to me. I, I, I have this desire for justice, and it can be good when advocating for the underdog, but it can be hard in relationships, and I'm discovering that. I don't know what to do with it yet. <laughs> Sorry, babe, uh, but, but I'm, I'm discovering that, and, and the truth is God is the one. God is the one who avenges us. And so when you forgive, it's not synonymous with weakness. It doesn't mean you're condoning someone to treat you all types of ways. It simply means you're making the choice to stop being angry toward them. Mythbuster number four, boundaries in a relationship does not mean you didn't forgive. Man, I've seen so many of my, my friends, my peers some of my single friends, my married friends, this notion that, hey, if I set up these boundaries, then am I really forgiven? Oh, oh yes, you are. You can set up boundaries to make sure people don't just uh, get into your personal space or treat you any kind of way. It is still healthy to set boundaries, agreed upon boundaries in relationships, even when you are forgiving someone. Because Fifth, uh, the, the fifth myth, bu uh, myth buster is that forgiveness is a process. It's not an event. You don't just do it one time. 
People are going to hurt you. People are going to be flawed. People are jacked up. I'm jacked up. And we're going to continue to hurt each other. And forgiveness is a process. It is not an event. Man, to the Christians in the room, there's an author named Neil Anderson. And he says this. I agree with this 100%. He writes a lot of books about spiritual warfare. And he says this. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. See, unforgiveness erodes the quality and the intimacy of your relationships. It eats away and chews away at the quality and the intimacy of your relationships. So we are continuing our Real Love series. Y'all been enjoying the Real Love series? Facts. And and one of the things I have pulled out and what we want to continue to talk about is this real love, this word agape. And agape isn't born just out of emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will and as a choice. Forgiveness is a choice. Agape requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice without expecting anything in return. My biggest struggle is if I hold on to these facts, then I know at least in return, my feelings are going to be validated too. And if I really want to love in my relationships with my friends and my wife, man, I got to let that go. I have to remember that True love, agape love, requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice without expecting anything in return. Here's my hope this morning. My hope this morning is to really challenge those of us who follow Jesus, but yet we are more known for our record keeping than our forgiveness. Now, the record keepers sit up. I'm about to talk to you because we got problems. The first reason I think it's really easy for us to practice unforgiveness and for those of us who keep records of wrong, I think it's really simple. We're sinful. We are sinful people. We are broken. The truth is the Bible is very clear about the diagnosis about the human condition, we would naturally, left to ourselves, choose everything else other than God. That's sin. And in our relationships, we would rather choose everything else other than God. And in our sinful nature, in my sinful nature, in my sinful condition, as it relates to me practicing unforgiveness, I really am just prideful. (laughs) I think more of myself than I should. Paul, in the, when he's writing this letter to the Romans, Paul the apostle, he says it like this. He says, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. A big part of the challenge for those of us who are record keepers is we are too freaking prideful. 
And man, if we could eradicate pride from the church, I wonder how the world would feel. One of the effects I know that when I notice my pride, uh, I realize that I would, I would stop thinking that Heather's wrongs are more wrong than mine. When I, when I peep that, man, I'm just thinking more about yo, but, but no, she, yo, she, no. <laughs> nah. When I, when I think about it in those terms, I realize I'm being prideful. Here's another reason why I think we, it's so easy for us to keep records of wrong. It's because we're fearful. I'm, I'm fearful. You know what I'm fearful of? I'm fearful to actually sit down and think about how much my record keeping hurts people. I really fear that, that place, to just sit and think about it. To think about the hurt that has been caused and because I'm fearful, I preserve. I go into self-preservation. I think about me more than others. But honestly, self-preservation is the antithesis to the Christian life. It's not the way Jesus calls those who follow him to live Jesus says this in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. See, the root of sin is selfishness, but the root of love is sacrifice. The Christian life, man, we... And now, now listen, I'm not saying for those people following Jesus who, who are worn out and you have done way too much because you keep pouring out, pouring out, you're just unhealthy. I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being unhealthy. I'm saying that you would be so vulnerable with people that you would not uh, develop a wall of self-preservation, but you would let that down so you can invite people in and have a real exchange of intimacy. Self-preservation is not the way God has called us to live our lives. And lastly, because of our sinful nature, our, our perspective of God is skewed. Not only are my passions disoriented, not only is my, my, my heart uh, bent toward everything other than God, but when I think about God, I start thinking that he's the ultimate record keeper. Now, check it out. Some of y'all might be like, Aswan, that's not me, bro. <laughs> All them other ones, maybe, but that's not me. <laughs> Peep, maybe that's true, but think about how you pray. When you pray, you start with what? God, please don't for this. Not that. I'm sorry about this. I'm sorry about that. Maybe he just wants to delight in you. Think about it. Sin skews our perspective of God and ultimately ourselves. 
See, keeping records of wrong is not the way God has designed us and created us to be in relationship. We are to, to be in harmonious relationship with him and with others. But equally important, in our relationship with God, we have to get free from the narrative that he's the ultimate record keeper because he's not. He is not keeping record of wrong because he loves us. He's compassionate towards us. See, our inability to forgive people of their wrongs is what erodes the quality and the intimacy of our relationships. But here's the good thing. There's an account today that we'll talk about that I think will help us get free of record keeping. This comes in Matthew 8, uh, Matthew 18, sorry. Yo, y'all ever thought about, like, how big the Bible is? Yo. (laughs) I've, I've thought about that. I work with teenagers. I'm like, I don't know why y'all don't read it. Y'all see this joint. Y'all like, I ain't reading that. It's an amazing text, though. It is a beautiful text. We are to experience it, not just read it. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter approached him. Peter, one of the followers of Jesus, approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, His children and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. That's harsh. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his servant, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also, shouldn't you have all, verse 33, shouldn't you? Also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. This is a straightforward parable. 
we do not got to get fancy with this one. Jesus gives a lot of parables to the masses so that it's a spiritual truth couched in a realistic story or some sort of metaphor. But this one, Peter asked the question. And when Peter asked the question, Peter actually was being generous when he asked. He already started from saying, okay, I know I'm not supposed to give some, forgive somebody just once. I need to forgive somebody at least seven times because on the eighth time, I'm blacking on them. Jesus blows that metric out of the water by saying, yo, it's 70 times 7. Peter, you, you got it mixed up. And then Jesus goes into this parable and think about it. What, the details here, what Jesus is doing is so beautiful. He uses this king and, this, and the debt of this servant. And what you need to know about the passage is this servant would have had no way. There was literally no way to cover the debt that he had with the king. There was nothing he could do. The, the debt was way too large. It would have taken him several lifetimes to be able to repay that kind of money. And here's what Jesus is saying. The debt between us and God is enormous. It requires a very gracious and enormous type of saving. And so instead of there being a little portion of the loan uh, 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 squelched, instead of there being maybe some of it, all of it is forgiven. In the same way, Jesus is saying all of the debt, all of your sin debt has been forgiven. Not some, not most of it, all of it. And please don't forget how large it was. Because Jesus juxtaposes this king and this servant's uh, interaction with now what the servant who has just been forgiven. Man, how many times, Christians, are we forgetting that we've just been forgiven? And then he goes out, chokes out somebody that owes him $15. The nerve. Like, yo, the debt that you had to owe, you could have never paid this guy owes you like $15. Just give him a couple overtimes. He's good. He'll pay you back. He begs for mercy, and you treat him unmercifully. Man, I don't want us to be a church that is known more for our record-keeping and treating people unmerciful than being those who don't keep record of wrong. Man, Jesus is very clear here. He's saying, listen, you... Because you were forgiven, you should be the person going out to forgive. It is that simple. For those of us who follow Jesus, the greatest gift is the fact that all of your sin debt has been forgiven by God. And you now have the privilege and the honor to go out and be forgiven and, and, and be someone who provides forgiveness to others. But the challenge is, you don't rehearse that. Some of y'all, you may not even believe that in totality. But I want us to rehearse this truth. I want to read from Colossians because this to me is where we get the truth. And I needed to get deep in our souls, like those candy yams and that turkey we were just eating. I needed to get in our, the pit of our soul. Colossians uh, 2, verse 12. 
When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations. That was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. The enormous sin debt that you owe God was nailed to the cross in Jesus. And that is the basis for which the church should be practicing forgiveness. But here's the application. The truth is, okay, so I want you to hear this. Here's what I want you to get. In your relationships right now, the truth is you probably need to be more forgiven than you are. Facts. There's probably some things, and again, I'm not condoning, uh, if you're in some, some relationship where things are happening that are not healthy, I'm not condoning any type of unhealth, but I am saying there are some offenses, there are some flaws that you actually just need to let go. Because when you think about those in comparison to how you've been forgiven by, by Jesus, they pale in comparison. It's not even worth it. But I thought about this. I was like, okay, Lord, so if I was to practice this, if I was to commit to the practice of thinking about how I am forgiven, I still have some wrestling. I want to know the benefits of, 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 of rehearsing this forgiveness. What are the true benefits of that? Here's the first one. It actually should humble you. The problem with this servant is he wasn't humbled. It should humble you. And upon you being humbled, it should breed compassion. And this is where I struggle, guys. I pray that the Lord give me so much more of a compassionate heart. When I think about and see the effects of my record keeping, I want it to draw me and pull me down to compassion. And my prayer for you, for all of you who have the disease of record keeping, I pray that as you rehearse the truth about God's forgiveness in your life, that you would be free to be compassionate and forgiving to other people. Remember, unforgiveness erodes the quality and the intimacy of relationships. If you want to have and experience the fullness of your relationships, you have to burn the record book. You have to choose to burn the record book. Forgiveness is a process. The feelings will be there. But to forgive means to stop being angry. Stop masking your emotions and learn how to deal with them. Sit in them and choose to forgive, even when it's painful, even when it hurts, because the God of the universe has forgiven you. I want to do something, and I'll have the worship team come back up. I want to do something here today, this morning. 
I want us to say um, the Lord's Prayer. And I want us to practice it. And we're going to use debts instead of trespasses. And what I want us to rehearse just a little bit is this idea that in the Lord's Prayer it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I want you to start thinking about maybe some of the challenge with your relationships is that you've been holding the record book. And people don't know how to tell you that, so they just avoid you. People have been wounded and scarred by your ability to keep the record book. And that has been and created this challenge in your relationships. But imagine if you were in a relationship where you weren't in front of a judge that was holding your records of wrong, your flaws or your offenses, but that they saw them and still chose to treat you as if they weren't there. Imagine the safety and security that that would create. Some of you Christians are not safe. I want us to be safe, safe spaces for intimacy to exchange, for there to be real, true agape love because the foundation of the relationship is based on a process of forgiveness. I want us to say the Lord's Prayer. Join me in this. And we will say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We'll say that three times, and then we'll close the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Say it again. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Say it again. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the glory, forever. Amen. Let me pray. Daddy, would you help us rehearse the truth of our forgiveness in you? That in Christ, the wholeness of our sin debt was nailed to the cross. The certificate, the record books have been burned. And God, would we be compassionate people who go out in the world and help them taste and see that the Lord is good by being people who forgive. God, I know it's, we know it's not easy. I know you know it's not easy for us. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be more compassionate and more forgiving in our relationships. God, for those of us who are unaware, would you make us aware and free us, free us from this bondage of unforgiveness? And God, would you bring a healing balm to those who have experienced record keeping for so long? Would you heal their hearts? and free us right now because you are good. In Jesus' name.